welcome to Intersections, part of the Brookings Podcast Network, the podcast where we talk about the angles on policy issues. I'm your host, Adriana Pita, and with me today are Vonda Felbab-Brown, a senior fellow with our Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence, and Denny Bahar, a fellow with the Global Economy and Development Program. Thank you both for being with us today. I've asked you both here to take a look at U.S.-Mexico relations under the Trump administration, which rather famously, both on the campaign trail and in the first few months of governing, has had soured relations, both because of inflammatory rhetoric and some of the policy proposals, from building a massive wall to ripping up the North American Free Trade Agreement. And as I was preparing for this and reading both your work and the work of others, what really struck me and what I I hope we get at today is the depth of cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico on economic issues and on both the traditional security side that people might think of, basic border control and drug trafficking, but also a wider range of counterterrorism issues, the movement of migrants, environmental issues, and of course, economic relationships that are much more complicated than just, well, the jobs went to Mexico, we buy the goods here, and then the immigrants come here and they take the jobs and they send all their money home. So that's what I'm really hoping to get at with the two of you is about how an America first perspective is actually bad for the US and it's also bad for Mexico and to really get at the depth of the relationship between the two of them. So I'm hoping we can start with NAFTA. And to talk about how, while that has come to stand as a symbol of all of the manufacturing job losses here in the U.S. over the last 25 plus years and the offshoring of jobs and production more generally, the U.S. and Mexico are actually each other's largest trading partners. And there's a really deep and rich relationship that you both have written about. Trade is much more complicated than just a one-way flow. So, Danny, could I ask you to start maybe with some of your reflections on some of the myths of NAFTA and some of the misconceptions about manufacturing and the relationship there between the U.S. and Mexico. Sure. Well, as you said, Mexico is one of the most important trade partners of the U.S. And most economists would argue that it has contributed very positively to the U.S. economy as well to the Mexican economy. And of course, you know, there are losers from trade. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that everybody should be aware of. But when you look at NAFTA in particular, I think that the losers even though they are there, it doesn't mean that the treaty is the worst treaty that has been signed ever. But some things are worth mentioning. For instance, mm-hmm. it is true that blue-collar workers, for instance, have suffered in some industries that have been more open to competition. Some of them saw slower growth in their wages. And many of them also lost their jobs. It's very hard to actually find an estimate of how many people actually were affected by these. Most of the serious estimates will say that uh, between 100,000 and 300,000 people lost their jobs because of NAFTA. That's a very small amount relative to the U.S. labor force. It's 0.1 to 0.3 percent of the labor force. It is true that many more jobs were lost. So this is a very tiny portion of the 5 million jobs that were lost in manufacturing in the U.S. since 2000. Mm -hmm. But to say that most of of those jobs were lost because of NAFTA, there's no evidence to back that up. Most of these jobs were lost to technology, to higher productivity, and you see these also across all developed nations, not only in the U.S. The share of workers in manufacturing has gone down dramatically, regardless of whether they're running a trade deficit or trade surplus. So I think that all in all, some estimates of economies, very serious economies, show that the welfare gains from NAFTA have been positive, both for Mexico and for the U.S., and even though there has been some losses, they're not enough to offset the gains uh, from trade. I think you had both talked about how production chains, it's not just that the factory is now in Mexico and people buy things here. There's actually sort of unified or piecemeal production chains that work together between both countries. Can you both talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. If you actually look at the numbers, more than 50% of the imports from Mexico are intermediate goods. So, Can you say what that means? Yeah, of course. So intermediate goods are, as opposed to final goods, are goods that American firms use in their production process. Plastics or things that are part of the final good that the U.S. firms will, will do. So it's not, I'm trying to make the distinction between an orange, which it will be, I mean, you could bring an orange from Mexico and an American consumer will actually take the orange as it came, mm-hmm. as opposed to screws or iron or things that are actually used in production. And that's a very important point because more than half of the imports from Mexico are intermediate goods, which means that American firms are strongly benefiting from this trade because that makes American firms more competitive. They can import these intermediate goods at a lower cost, which means that they can also sell at lower cost, not only to American consumers, but also to the rest of the world. The misconception that when you import things, it's causing jobs to be lost, that's not quite true because it's also generating a lot of jobs by American firms that are now able to export to other markets because they're able to import intermediate goods from Mexico. And I would add to what Dennis started talking about, namely the issue of consumers. Mm-hmm. One of the ironies and tragedies of the narrative, the way the Trump administration and previously candidate Trump has portrayed it, is to focus on the job losses. Mm-hmm. Once again, I want to reemphasize what Dennis said, that it's very simplistic to paint the entirety of job losses as relevant to NAFTA Mm -hmm. and or in other issues like climate change, for example, in terms of mining, and really uh, ignore the issue of technology and uh, productivity. But similarly, one of the real benefits of NAFTA and the integration that has taken place, including the imports of intermediate goods for joint production chains are significantly lower costs for American consumers, significantly lower costs of anything from avocados Mm -hmm. through cars with potentially very large gains gained by the most vulnerable white-collar American workers and families that actually voted for Trump. So if the Trump administration delivers on its key promise of negotiating NAFTA, Mm -hmm. and if that in fact results in a collapse of NAFTA, U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA, the most hurt will be precisely the many people who voted for Trump because firms will be able to pass increases in costs on to consumers. And because not all goods can be replaced by simply American production. So take, for example, the issue of agriculture. The United States consumes all of the avocados that are produced in the United States, and yet we still import very large quantity from Mexico. So we cannot just say, well, we'll start growing more avocados. There are limitations. And in fact, the outcome might be that instead of paying uh, $2, $3 per avocado, families might have to absorb costs of $5 per avocado. Mm-hmm. And that's in basic daily consumption. With respect to cars, the hikes, again, can be 20 30% on a car. Yeah, I want to reemphasize that. And for all of you eating guacamole, this is a very <laughs> important point because... All of the policy ideas that have been brought on by the Trump administration to deal with the trade deficit with Mexico Mm -hmm. are not actually going to make a big change in the trade deficit on its own and will actually impact the consumer. So, for instance, when you're talking about tariffs, Mm -hmm. uh, the President Trump at some point said that he 
thinks that it will be appropriate to put a 35% tariffs on goods imported from Mexico, which means what Vanda just said, that your guacamole and your avocados are going to be 35% more expensive mm -hmm. uh, for consumers uh, everywhere. It also means that firms that import a lot of intermediate goods will have to pay more to bring those goods, uh, which means – and all those costs are going to be passed on to the consumers. And it's also going to make American firms less competitive in the world. So these actually will be a huge threat to job growth in America. So that's one thing. And the other thing I would like to add is that I think that the focus on NAFTA has been in two things, in the job losses first and also in the trade deficit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a huge trade deficit, they say. And that's not quite the right measure to look at trade. Trade is not a zero-sum game. It's not that, you know, we're losing and they're winning because they have, we have the deficit, they have the surplus. You know, countries run deficits. The U.S. has been running a trade deficit for decades already, mm -hmm. in good times and in bad times. And, you know, deficits, of course, result in debt. But debt is a bad thing only if you're not able to pay it or if people think that you're not going to be able to pay it. But that's not the case for the U.S. And all these measures that are brought forward by the administration as ideas to try to deal with the deficit, such as the tariffs or to change the tax system so that you can punish imports and then incentivize exports, that's not really going to change much of the deficit because there are other facts happening in the economy, such as the exchange rate. So the exchange rate will adjust, right, in ways that is a little bit, it's complicated macro, but it, the, the short story is that the exchange rate adjusts in a way that at the end of the story, the deficit will stay there. So I think it's really important to think that when we hear, you know, that the trade deficit is large and is growing, it's not something unusual. It, it, many countries have trade deficits, and it just says that we are just importing more than what we are exporting with a particular country. Is our trade deficit sometimes with one country, whether it's Mexico or maybe China or some other, then offset by a trade surplus that we have with somebody else, or is it offset by something completely unrelated to trade issues? Right. Yeah. So in general, the U.S. is running a trade deficit all over. And with Mexico, okay. it's also about $50 billion on the trade deficit. It's a good question because actually the trade deficit, when you do accounting with basic economics, you understand that the trade deficit corresponds to the gap between savings and investment mm -hmm. in a whole country. I'm not going to get into the math right. here. But the point being that it is a structural issue. So if you actually, I mean, the fact that there is a trade deficit, it means that Americans are not saving as much as the investment that there is. So the investment is being financed by other countries in the world. So to put it simply, if you want to reduce the trade deficit, one way to do it is to have people consume less and save more. That's not a great thing, especially when you're coming out of a recession. I would like to take the conversation for a moment um, a little bit higher on the issue of trade and Trump administration to echo some of the comments that, that Danny made and that you started asking Adriana at the beginning, namely very much the notion in the Trump administration that trade is a zero-sum game, uh, mm -hmm. something that Danny appropriately countered. I mean, we just saw a recent very important summit on trade uh, attended not by the president, by, by top U.S. officials. And it was striking that for the first time, the U.S. administration essentially forced on the world a disavowing of free trade. There was, not, there was not a comment, really, that free trade benefits all. And instead, the emphasis was on trade that benefits individual countries. And so the interaction with Mexico is part and parcel of this notion 
that we will benefit at your expense or you benefit at our expense, as opposed to what has really underpinned the global economic and political order since World War II, coming out of the experience of U.S. isolationism in the 30s, that trade can benefit all. Mm-hmm. Isn't that one of the fears about tariffs that once one country starts putting tariffs on somebody else, then basically everybody starts putting tariffs and everybody's trade suffers? Well, that's uh, an element of that. Um, And, you know, the irony, of course, is that if, in fact, tariffs become a tool of policy, then they perhaps can uh, drive deeper integration because one is also hurt by the retaliation in tariffs. What the Trump administration is not really understanding is precisely this dynamic that it will not just be the United States imposing tariffs or saying here is a 20% tariff on imports from Mexico or from other countries, but that the countries will also retaliate. Not to mention the fact that the tariff proposals that have been floated very unsystematically are really inconsistent uh, with NAFTA. So one can have the tariffs or one can have NAFTA and the the timing and the moment when the White House and Congress, the Republican side of Congress, raised them really almost preempted conversation with Mexico about how to improve and deepen NAFTA. Now, you know, there's been a little bit of stepping back from that, mm-hmm. but we are yet to see. Uh, I, but I want to drive this basic point that um, economists and U.S. administration for decades have been trying to persuade the world and persuaded the world that free trade benefits everyone, benefits everyone economically, but also ultimately results in positive, broader political effects. And the Trump administration is saying, no, we want trade that benefits us, and implicitly saying we want trade that benefits, that then really hurts you, because our view is that we are being hurt. And so it's really fundamental reorientation of uh, the core element or a core element of U.S. foreign policy that is so far uh, coming out of the administration. And and countries are responding. Mexico is still, I think, very much trying to preserve NAFTA. NAFTA Mm -hmm. brought a lot of benefits to Mexico, hardly perfect, hardly uniform, just like on the U.S. side, hardly overwhelming, but nonetheless a lot of benefits to Mexican uh, businesses and Mexican people. Mm -hmm. And that benefits us. Because we are joint community is a point uh, I would like to come back to later. But one of the effects of these months now of um, the Trump's administration really anti-Mexico messaging has been that Mexico is really pushing forward to negotiate free trade agreements with Europe the European Union, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as well as uh, looking increasingly to China to be a much greater and deeper partner with China on economic issues. And once again, that might really hurt U.S. competitiveness. In fact, unwise policies by the Trump administration might push Mexico much closer to China, something that is ostensibly not what the Trump administration wants to do, but might in fact... uh, Uh, inadvertently produce. I want to jump in also on this idea of trade and what can be done, because I think that there are things that not everything is perfect and there are things that can be improved. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that even if trade like is a good thing and they're getting some trade, there have been a lot of people that have been hurt. But what I think is that if the Trump administration really wants to stand out, 
in solving this problem is it shouldn't be through stopping trade. Because again, there were 6 million jobs that were lost in manufacturing in the U.S., but only a tiny portion of them can be attributed to trade. Mm -hmm. The big chunk of it have been because of technology improvements, and, and that's something that these underlying trends, that we can't stop them. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't, because that's what's making the U.S. more productive and so on. But there is perhaps a space to create programs with safety nets to these people who are losing their jobs. And I think that that's where the perhaps other administrations failed. And ironically, perhaps that's part of what brought Trump to power. Uh, but I think that there's a space there to really think about how to help these workers transition to another industries or, or even perhaps until retirement if necessary. And I think that that's missing. And, you know, trying to start a, a tariff war is not going to help these people. And I think that that's a point that we should push forward and think together with the administration. And of course, ironically, the attempt to destroy the mama care is once again uh, uh, punching a further blow precisely to the most vulnerable people that have suffered a lot over the past decade. Yeah. I do want to move to the security side of the relationship, starting with sort of the question of a lot of the drug trade and drug cartels and drug trafficking into the U.S., there has been, of course, increased violence in Mexico in recent years, and U.S. lawmakers frequently cite concerns about that spilling over the border and sort of what that means for the U.S. However, there are also concerns that increasing the involvement of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office with local law enforcement and initiatives like the proposed Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Office that was proposed for DHS, that that's unnecessarily demonizing of immigrants. And it doesn't reflect the reality of criminal trends in the U.S. Vonda, could I ask you to talk a little bit about what the real statistics are about crime amongst immigrant communities in the U.S. and what sort of cooperation there is between the U.S. and Mexico, both cross-border issues and just criminal investigation in general? Sure. So let me start by saying that President Trump's portrayals of the United States being in a state of carnage mm -hmm. are false. Violent crime rates in the United States have been dropping dramatically for two decades until perhaps last year. Mm -hmm. Last year, we saw spikes, moderate spikes in homicides that are principally driven by two cities, Chicago and Baltimore. Communities in these two cities are clearly struggling and, and suffering, and there is a real need to improve security in both cities. However, it is false to portray this as a cross-the-board rise in violence rates and to use language of fear and demonization such as carnage. Second, it is vastly inappropriate to attribute to the rise in violence to immigrants. In fact, there is strong evidence from professional criminology studies that show that the violent rates, especially violent homicide rates, among first-generation immigrants are much lower than among uh, those who were born in the United States. Mm. What is going on with Chicago and Baltimore is a variety of factors. Uh, there are sort of many complications and two simplistic stories, but an element of that is indeed turf warfare over drug retail markets. Nonetheless, that is not the entire story. You have other drug retail markets across the United States that are very peaceful, including, for example, in Washington, D.C., hardly the peaceful of cities, but the, the level of violence that characterized the drug retail market in the Washington, D.C. in the 80s is order of magnitude higher than what we are seeing today. So there are particular problems, deficiencies, and structural issues happening 
for a long time with Baltimore. Mm-hmm. We're simply now focusing on that and more acutely with Chicago. On the other side of the border, the violence is strikingly different. And to use the term carnage is indeed appropriate there. Mexico has, over the past decade, has had between 100 to 170,000 homicide deaths, which is an excruciating number. We're talking about between 15 and 20,000 people dying as a result of violent homicides per year. And those are really rates that surpass the levels of violence of a country in a civil war. The standard political science measure of civil war is 1,000 deaths per year, Mm -hmm. where we're talking 15 times as much, 20 times as much, including this past year in Mexico being a very bad year with violence reaching the peak levels of, say, 2010, Mm -hmm. 2011. And so countering that violence is crucial. However, that violence has not spilled into the United States. The violence dynamics in Baltimore and Chicago and the peace dynamics in places like San Diego and Tijuana are of their own, a crucial component of which is the quality of U.S. law enforcement and the deterrence capacity of U.S. law enforcement. So to say that immigrant communities are the source of violence, violent crime in the United States is too blanket and and in general false. And second, to then try to say, look, what's happening in Mexico that will come to the U.S. is, again, way too simplistic. Uh, When we talk about what does and doesn't work in terms of deterrence, this sort of seems like an appropriate point to jump to, you know, the question of the wall. And Vonda, you called it signal infrastructure. Like the fence that's already there is already saying this is the border and this is where we stop people from coming across. And you've talked about how interdiction only does so much in terms of drug smuggling, drug trafficking. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about what has been proposed in terms of the wall and why people think that that's going to be more effective and maybe why it is or isn't? I first want to drive home the point that much of the violence, criminal violence, homicides in the United States does not happen because someone sneaks across the border into the United States and shoots someone. The vast majority of violent deaths are by people that were born in the United States with complex issues having to do perhaps with marginalization, slum communities, African-American gangs, Latino gangs. But it's not that people are sneaking across the borders with guns to shoot someone in the United States. The drugs obviously flow across the borders, in fact, continents. Some are produced in Mexico, heroin and methamphetamines. Others are produced in Colombia and elsewhere in the Andes, such as uh, cocaine. The wall will not stop the drug flows, just as the existing fence has not stopped the drug flows. The existing fence did for a while deter the number of Mexican migrants trying to cross into the United States. But once again, that is not a sufficient story. The growth of the Mexican economy, the job creations in the maquilas, remittances, all enabled people who were trying to get from Mexico into the United States to stay in Mexico. And so paradoxically, if you really rupture NAFTA and the trade, we might be generating more of an impetus for people from Mexico once again to try to come to the United States to get work. Now, because of excruciating violence rates in Central America, we have seen big flows of people from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, including minors, people, Mm -hmm. children as young as eight, six, ten, on their own trying to get into the United States. 
the fans has had some effects in deterring them, but I wouldn't overemphasize those effects. There are many reasons to that, one of which is that the fence and the wall that the Trump administration imagines does not often actually run on the actual border because of physical limitations it's set in into the United States. So for people who want to apply for asylum, they don't need to make it across the wall. They just need to make it into the U.S. territory and even be stopped by wall and they will still be eligible for asylum. Now, in other parts of the division, the fence and the proposed border is located on the border, so that this is not systematic. But the issue of asylum will not be eliminated by making the structure bigger. And traffickers will find many ways to go around it, the most simple being simply to hide drugs among legal goods. Mm-hmm. And those drugs don't have to cross the physical border. They can come in cargo containers mm-hmm. uh, coming from other parts of the world, as is happening already. Uh, the United States cannot and should not stop goods from abroad to come to the United States, and traffickers will simply mix drugs into the legal trade there. Or they will resort to smuggling, as is already happening, by boats once again. And indeed, the future may well be drones. There are already attempts to fly drones with drug payload across the fence. They have been so far limited uh, by size, so it's not very efficient. Uh, but in a matter of years, it will become cost efficient. Since you brought up remittances and you said you wanted to talk a little bit about the communities, the cross-border communities, it seems like sort of a, a good point to turn to that. You know, we don't necessarily have the latest numbers, but for uh, essentially 10 years, remittances have hovered around 20 to 23 billion per year. And the Trump campaign has used the language of seizing the remittances to pay for the wall. That is a highly problematic statement, including legally. Many of the remittances are obviously from people who are in the United States legally. One cannot just take their money. Mm -hmm. And sorting through what are legal and illegal remittances is a significant financial auditing, financial forensic tasks. Moreover, we don't really know what the wall will cost because there have been very limited specifications. The Trump administration used numbers such as 12 billion to 15 billion. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's been recently a DHS internal report that used the number of 29 billion. Uh, and there have been other studies that pushed the number an order of magnitude higher. By the way, the trade deficit with Mexico is 50 billion, so you can imagine that you are going to build a wall that is like half of the trade deficit for a year. That doesn't really uh, make a lot of sense. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this notion that the Trump administration has put forward that somehow it will make Mexico pay for it uh, (laughs) is not only enormously politically explosive in Mexico, but that is also just no easy way to accomplish that. How will one accomplish that without destroying itself completely? And then there is the other issue, which is the one that we raised before, namely that the flow of remittances has enabled human capital development as well as basic economic survival for many communities and and people, individuals, families who would otherwise be tempted to come into the United States Mm -hmm. by cutting remittances either through some sort of seizure or because of other changes in U.S. trade or domestic policy, that means that the people will be left without basic livelihoods and might be uh, more tempted to come in. 
Thank yeah, you. no, I just want to say that um, uh, th that it's important when people make these calculations and often they come out of administration to say, well, you know, there are $20 billion of remittances going back and forth. We're just going to put a tax on them or there's so much trade, we're just going to put a tax on them. And then you make a back of the envelope calculation, you know, 10% of $20 billion is, 20, is $2 billion. It's not as simple. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. the economy fluctuates and responds to these taxes and to the things. So if you are suddenly going to put a tariff to pay for the wall or some sort of tax on the remittances, of course, the overall amount of money that you're going to be able to get is much lower than what you think because it's going to affect the actual number of goods flowing or, or money flowing through remittances. So I think that that sounds obvious, but I think it's important to remind the listeners that it's not as trivial as just, you know, getting a calculator and just multiply by a percentage and that's what you got. These numbers respond to the actions and decisions of people. Mm -hmm. and, and this theme is not so simple also goes to um, the issue I wanted to raise of the relationship of Mexico and the United States is not simply a relationship between two separate neighbors. This is what is the broader vision of the Trump administration, that we can drive this wall and separate the two countries, isolate the United States from Mexico. In fact, U.S. citizens live in Mexico. U.S. citizens go to Mexico for medical services. They retire there. And, of course, people who are U.S. citizens are of Mexican origins. Mm -hmm. They have families across. It's not matters anymore of the border communities being defined as a very narrow geographic space, such as uh, Native American reservations overlapping the border. People of Mexican origin live uh, deep in the northern states uh, mm -hmm. of the United States. The ties and binds between the communities are simply much bigger. And so to try to drive a, a rupture and the division between the two countries really means ripping apart trade communities, family communities, social communities, and in fact the very identity of what the United States is about. Families have been coming here and living here and settling here for a really long time. Danny, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what immigration from Mexico looks like, which is the immigration that is actually from Mexico has actually been down more in recent years. It has been coming more, as Vonda said, from, from Central America than from Mexico itself. Talk a little bit about the immigrant communities that are here in the U.S., what their contributions to the economy are, and what it might mean if we suddenly cut back on, on immigration yeah. levels. That's a great question. I think that following Vanda's numbers on the crime, the characterization of the president saying that most of the migrants are a threat, and I think he used the word rapists and criminals, it's also not accurate at all. It's very far off from reality. When you talk about migration and you want to think about how it affects the economy, most people will tend to you know, separate between skilled migration and unskilled migration. I think when it comes to skilled migration, there's wide consensus among economists that this is a good thing for the economy full stop. Skilled migrants tend to be very entrepreneurial. They create jobs for Americans. There are many, many reasons why skilled migration is positive. When it comes to unskilled migration, actually the evidence is not dramatically different if you look around. Mm -hmm. Most unskilled migrants in the U.S. are working. I'm talking in particular also about the Mexican community. Mm -hmm. They are working informally, many of them, so they don't use social security benefits, but they do pay consumption taxes because mm -hmm. they consume and they eat. So often maybe their, their contribution to the country is much more than what actually they're getting back in terms of the fiscal. There's a study from the National Academies of Sciences 
that was showing that they actually there is some burden, the fiscal burden for first-generation migrants, but then it's offset by the contribution of the second and third-generation migrants. So when it comes to Mexican workers in particular, I think the big concern is that the presence of many unskilled migrants in the economy is depressing the wages of others. Mm -hmm. And there may be some of that, but it's a very, very small effect. What we see in a few studies, some of them in the U.S., some of them in other countries, is that actually this could have even a positive effect. The idea that when unskilled migrants, first of all, there's the idea that not everybody's the same and not everybody's a substitute for somebody else. So many unskilled migrants would come and they actually have complementary skills to the ones of the natives and that actually, in theory, anything, a lot of practice increases the wages of everybody. And there are some studies that show that when there are a lot of, in particular for unskilled migrants that they come, they also have this effect on pushing I mean, they are competing for certain jobs with natives, but that creates a motivation for natives to actually have some sort of occupational mobility upwards. Hmm, um, they have that great incentive for them to invest more in their skills, and actually then you see an increase in wages. Into. So it is a difficult question. I'm not saying that, you know, it's hands-off, it increases or decreases, but I think that most of the evidence show that it's, it is positive for the economy. This, even if, if they're unskilled migrants, one thing that is important to say is that there's also a lot of entrepreneurship there. Maybe mm-hmm. not in Silicon Valley, but you know, restaurants and small shops that also creates jobs for Americans. So I think that that's one misconception that's out there that is not really, I mean, the, the misconception that unskilled migrants or Mexican migrants are taking over American jobs is not really supported by the evidence. And uh, one addition I would make to Danny's comments here is that there are some job sectors uh, in the United States that U.S. citizens simply do not want to do. Mm-hmm. The fish cutting industry is a very difficult, nasty job, and it's uh, overwhelmingly staffed by undocumented workers mm-hmm. simply because even unemployed, poor, struggling U.S. citizens do not want to put up with the job. Eventually, this might move to automation and robots taking on the job, displacing the undocumented workers, but they will not be displacing U.S. citizens because they don't want the job to start with. Similarly, a lot of the job in uh, agriculture, picking fruit, which tend to be very hard, physically hard jobs, there is very limited interest from U.S. workers to be employed in these sectors. And in fact, for a decade and a half, many of employers in the sector were trying to work out a deal with first the George W. Bush administration and later on Obama administration to extend visas for people from Mexico, Central America to be legally employed because they could not find jobs among U.S. citizens, or they could not find interest among U.S. citizens in those jobs. And, uh, of course, that has materialized because immigration reform has been just utterly paralyzed in the United States. I want to make one more comment related to the immigration policies and the Trump's administration over comments that it wants to focus on violent violators of U.S. immigration laws. In fact, the executive orders coming over the past several weeks from the Trump administration have so broadened the notion of what is violent crime down to using U.S. food stamps as constituting violent crime and a deportable offense mm-hmm. while suspending regular due of law process uh, systems. So while ostensibly the Trump administration is uh, prides itself on exporting violent offenders, in practice it's really talking about unmasked deportations 
which are extraordinarily financially costly and will be a big burden on U.S. taxpayers, but which really just blur and eliminate any notion of violent offenders as being priority targets. And finally, the Obama administration deported a lot of people Mm -hmm. uh, who, for two reasons, one was precisely to focus on people with violent criminal records who were not U.S. citizens or were not legally in the United States, but also because early on it gambled on the notion that deportations as well as further tightening the wall by putting on the signal intelligence at the border that you spoke about would then get it buy-in from uh, Congress to pass immigration reform. And that, of course, didn't happen. But there were already very many deportations and very overburdened systems with asylum hearing procedures, the conditions in which the either asylum seekers or other detainees are kept being often quite horrific. Mm-hmm. And just on the social dimension, one of the um, sort of last acts of the Obama administration and the Justice Department was to move away from private prisons, Mm -hmm. which often have been of very poor quality in terms of security, human rights, standards, and other conditions of not just criminal offenders, but asylum seekers being kept in or or, uh, private detention centers. And that's another dimension that the Trump administration is priding itself on really resurrecting. And there's one more cost that I think that it's important to consider, which is this uncertainty that is coming out of the rhetoric of deportations and so on, discourages immigrants, Mexican immigrants, from investing in their skills and maybe learning the language and so on, right? If you don't know if they're going to deport you tomorrow, why would you invest in becoming a better worker and so on? And I think that this is a a very important component that is usually not discussed in, in this debate about legalization that if there was some more certainty for these workers, that if they would know that they will stay here for a period of time, mm-hmm. um, that it's fine. They will perhaps, you know, invest more and in, become more productive workers, also like adding more to the economy. Well, and then there is the massive security cost. I mentioned earlier that crime issues cannot be in the United States cannot be overwhelmingly attributed to first-generation immigrants, including illegal immigrants. But it is clear that the reason why crime in the United States, one of the reasons why crime in the United States has gone down is because of essentially improved relations between police departments and communities. And the drive of the Trump administration to tear the relationship apart to make local police departments key actors in hunting down, really conducting dragnets for Mm -hmm. undocumented workers will result in communities, migrant communities, minority communities even further pulling back from the police and perhaps dramatically pulling back from the police. And that means that local communities will not provide information to police departments. That has massive repercussions from lone wolf terrorist attacks with Mm -hmm. respect to perhaps Islamic uh, communities to ordinary urban security with respect to Latino communities. So again, the ostensible goal of the Trump administration will not only be not accomplished, but in fact, the current situation will be much worsened by the way it envisions anti-crime policies to take place. Before we wrap up, I want to turn briefly to the political picture on the Mexican side. You've both talked a little bit about how some of the decisions the U.S. might made could have serious economic repercussions for Mexico. 
Mexico does have a presidential election coming up in 2018. So can you both talk a little bit, either of you or both of you, talk a little bit about what we know about how Mexican politicians are reacting to this? And do we know anything about some of the candidates who might be coming forward for the 2018 race? I think I'm going to let Vanda talk more in detail about the domestic politics, but I do want to just mention a couple of things that I think are going to be very important in the campaign. Mm -hmm. One of them is what we talked already, which is NAFTA. And I think that in particular, I think the big challenge seems like NAFTA will be renegotiated somehow. And I think the big challenge is how can the Mexican government do for this renegotiation to be effective? We don't really know what's in the mind of the U.S. administration, but I think one of the possible avenues through which NAFTA could be renegotiated and have to do also with environmental concerns and, and things like that, that, will, that I think that there is space there to think on how to improve the trade relationship with Mexico. So I bet that will play an important role in the campaign. On the other hand, I think it's also important to, after all the conversation we had, we heard a lot about a lot of sticks and not so many carrots. So I think that Vanda, in very clear ways, explained the problems with drug trafficking and all the problems across the border, which, of course, they need a lot of cooperation with the Mexican government. Mm -hmm. So the smart way to do it will be, on one hand, not to be so tough on NAFTA, Mm -hmm. because that could actually jeopardize the cooperation with the Mexican authorities. So I think that that's a big challenge for the next government of Mexico to think how are they going to cooperate with the U.S. government, because... They know that this is a very important topic for the U.S. It should be, and it seems like they're not getting a lot of incentive to do that. So I think it's going to be interesting to look at that, those discussions. Well, absolutely. I think that after the elections, the Mexican government really reached out overwhelmingly to the incoming administration, to the transition team, and hoped to move the discussion toward mutual benefits, mutual cooperation, very much with the mindset that there were elements of NAFTA, such as environmental issues, intellectual property rights, several other dimensions that would really benefit strongly from having additional side-binding agreements on how to deepen uh, integration, but deepen integration in ways that elevates labor standards and environmental standards. And Trump administration just threw cold water on that. And the manner in which it handled the relationship with Mexico and the statements that have come out in a haphazard way, I think, really soured the Mexican government on that and really constrained the political space in Mexico very significantly to which Mexico can make uh, concessions. Now, the Trump administration is also hell-bent in the United States on destroying environmental regulations and, frankly, destroying the environment. So it will probably see little benefit of trying to achieve better bilateral environmental standards since its domestic view is to turn the U.S. environmentally back into 19th century dirty Britain. But one of the consequences uh, of that is that the public opinion in Mexico from November to March has really turned away from trying to cooperate with the United States to sort of reject the United States. And that's striking difference and enormously damaging for the bilateral relationship. If anything, way beyond the economic integration, what NAFTA achieved was unprecedented level of U.S.-Mexican cooperation of two countries that for centuries were very distant. 
There was, for example, no security cooperation really until um, uh, essentially the Fox uh, administration and then really deepening under Calderon era. The United States had military-to-military relationship with every Latin American country except Mexico until the 1990s. It was only then as a result of the relationships and the leadership of then-President Cedillo and President Clinton and the economic benefits that NAFTA created that the level of cooperation went way beyond economic issues, went to security and a host of other dimensions. And so that's all being jeopardized. And the Mexican administration has been very explicit that it does not want to treat NAFTA in isolation, that uh, the Trump administration cannot have his cake and eat it too, shred NAFTA to pieces, and Mexico will cooperate on security issues. There have threats made that uh, Mexico might stop trying to enforce its southern border and might allow migrants from Central America to be coming to the northern border with the United States in much greater numbers. Mexican citizens have boycotted firms such as Walmart and others. And for the first time, it's significantly given rise to López Obrador, a sort of leftist, nationalist Mexican politician who is right now really having the highest support numbers of his long-term political career and who has a high chance of being elected. And uh, so the irony is that as a result of the Trump administration, we might end up with a populist leftist firebrand in Mexico, very much at odds and in an overly hostile relationship with the United States. So we might have two people of the same kind, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps with different political basic dispositions on the left-right side, sharing presidency and really at the cost of the communities, the North American community, both the United States and Mexico, and that would be tremendously unfortunate. All right. Uh, Do either of you have any last thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with? Uh, No. I mean, perhaps just the idea that this trade agreement that has been NAFTA, that has been active since the mid-90s, it's important to know it has had a tremendous impact, a positive impact on the U.S. economy. And I think that it feels at some point that we're going backwards to more isolation and more protectionism. And that's Definitely not the way to go, especially because the biggest challenge that the U.S. faces is the slowdown in productivity, which, of course, we can talk about at some other time. But this is what's keeping the U.S. economy from growing. And stopping trade is actually making the problem worse, not smaller. All right. All right. Thank you both very much for being here. And a reminder, listeners, they can find you both on Twitter at VFelbabBrown and at Danny, D-A-N-Y, underscore Bahar. And of course, they can follow the rest of the Brookings Podcast Network at Policy Podcasts. Thank you both. Good to be with you. <laughs>